All right, bow with me. Father, thank you for this beautiful fall day that you have given to us. Thank you that we can take comfort in who you are when we study the scripture and we learn about your sovereignty and your omnipotence, the fact that you are all-powerful, the fact that you are omniscient, you are all-knowing. Nothing that happens is a surprise to you. You never have to scratch your head and wonder what you're going to do next. All things were planned before the foundation of the world, and all things are happening even if we don't understand them. They are yet happening according to your plan for your ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. And Father, we pray that in this time of crisis, many, many people, by the thousands, by the millions, would be brought to a saving knowledge of yourself. And Father, we do pray even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because it does look like your return is at hand. And may, in light of that fact, we purify ourselves so that we're not ashamed at your coming. Help us to examine our hearts and to make sure, first of all, that we truly, truly are Christians, that we do indeed have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us because we have acknowledged Christ's death on our behalf for our sin, that we have repented of our sin, that we've turned from our sin and we've tur turned toward you. And secondly, may we purify ourselves in our daily walk. May we examine our hearts. May you test us and try us so that we get rid of the sin in our hearts. Help us not to be focusing as Lot did on the things of this world, but to focus our eyes on heaven, that city which you have prepared for us. And Lord, just teach us now through this lesson about the dangers of compromising with the world and the dangers of being focused on this world and all that it has to offer because it is just so temporary and it ultimately will burn up one day and all that will last is what we have done for you, Christ. And we pray in your name for your glory. Amen. Well, the last half of Genesis 19 contains the final account of Lot and it is a very depressing end. Actually, his whole life has been kind of depressing, but it gets worse. Since having left Abraham, Lot's life was just one continual, long spiritual decline. You know, Abraham was the, uh, the spiritual one. He was the one Lot needed to stay connected to. So once he left him, he just went on a spiral downward. Perhaps without a deeper analysis of Lot's life, a person might be inclined to feel a little bit sorry for him, you know, because he ended up in a cave, as we'll see this morning, with nothing except his uh, two unmarried daughters. However, after examining his life in the detail that we have been doing and seeing his worldly and selfish choices, we find that his sad end was really nobody's fault except whose? Right, except his own. He had sown to the wind and thus he reaped to the whirlwind, as it says in Hosea 8, 7. What we really should learn most from Lot's life is that... Um, we should not allow little sins to develop a pattern in our lives. And it's, that's how major sins begin. I mean, how they begin is with a little sin. Well, I'll just sin a little bit. 
Because what can happen? We see this in Lot's life. A little look, remember when he just looked up, lifted his eyes and looked toward Sodom, a little look can soon turn into a lust. He started to lust for the things of Sodom, which can then turn to a lifestyle. And his lifestyle became very compromised, very worldly. And before you know it, you can end up as Lot with great loss. Well, today's lesson, which is entitled The Friend of the World, you all have notes except those two. Everybody else has their notes in front of them so you can write down notes if you want to. All right, uh, Friend of the World, part two. And we're going to be looking at Genesis 15, I mean, Genesis 19, verses 15 to 38. Now, in last week's lesson, remember, we looked at the first three divisions of our six-part outline for this whole chapter. We looked at Lot's welcome, Lot's worldliness, and Lot's witness, which we subtitled Lot, a compromised believer, Lot, an ineffective leader, and Lot, a powerless witness. Now today, we're going to look at the last three divisions of our outline. We'll begin with Lot's withdrawal, then we'll look at Lot's wife, and thirdly, we'll look at Lot's wretchedness. And I have subtitled those, Lot, a double-minded man, Lot, a failed husband, and Lot, a pitiful father. Now, as we begin by looking at the first part, which is actually part four, Lot's withdrawal, under that section, we're going to look first of all at Lot's lingering in Sodom. Can you imagine that? He's just been told it's going to be destroyed imminently, and yet he lingers. So we're going to look at his lingering in Sodom, and then we're going to look at his longing for Zoar. Now, Zoar was another city in the Siddim Valley. But we'll begin with his lingering in Sodom, and for this, look with me at verses 15 and 16, right? Genesis 19, starting at verse 15. It says, And when the morning arose... Then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here. And by the way, let me stop and explain that the fact that it says thy two daughters, which are here, suggests that there were other daughters where? Elsewhere. There. And that's why, Catherine, I think you asked me last week about the, um, the sons-in-law's I believe that those sons-in-laws were actually sons-in-laws, which means they were married to other daughters. And so that's why we have here, Take thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And notice verse 16. And while he lingered, the men, now the men there is a reference to the angels, laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. The fourth picture that we have of Lot is as a double-minded man. Even though heavenly messengers who had demonstrated their supernatural natures when they had struck the Sodomites who had gathered outside of his house, uh, lusting for the two angels inside the house, they had struck all those men, great and small, old and young, with blindness. Uh, so they had shown Lot who they were, and now they're telling him that, they, that Sodom is to be destroyed, yet we find 
And even though he had taken that same message to his sons-in-laws, you know, that Sodom was going to be destroyed, get up and let's get out, yet we find him hesitating to leave Sodom when the morning broke and the angels were attempting to hasten him. The divine message was urgent. I mean, danger was imminent, and there was no time to lose, and yet he lingered, Lot lingered. He believed the angel messengers, you see, on the one hand, but on the other hand, he hesitated to leave his comfortable home and all his possessions and his lucrative business and his position as a leader of the city. And of course, I'm sure he also lingered to leave his offspring, his daughters who were married, his sons-in-laws, and if he had sons, which it seems to indicate he did. So he uh, was lingering. Lot had a weak will. He also had a love for the things of the world, even though he believed in the one and true living God of Abraham. I mean, he did believe. He was a righteous man. He believed in these things, yet he was very attached to this world. And that is what we call a double-minded man. It's impossible, you know, to have a really vibrant spiritual life, a really dynamic walk with the Lord when you nourish yourself on the things of this world and when you really get where you love the things of this world. However, God, we see, had mercy on Lot, just as he had previously when he gave Abraham the victory against tremendous odds over those four kings of the east in order to you know, rescue Lot from enslavement. Now, because of God's mercy, the two angels literally grabbed the hand of Lot, hands of Lot and his wife and his two unmarried daughters, and they pulled them out of the city of Sodom. How many angels were there? Two. How many hands does that make? Four. One hand for each of the members of Lot's family. So they grab each one of them by the hand and drag them out of Sodom. Now, Lot's wife, remember, and those two unmarried daughters had seen firsthand the power of their special guests. Remember, they had seen how they saved them from the mob. Because the mob would have broken down the door and come in and probably raped everybody and even maybe left them for dead. And they had seen how they had struck them all with blindness. And so they were, therefore, at least willing to go. They didn't stay behind like the other members of the family. But even then, it's amazing that um, they did literally, Lot in included, they literally did have to be pulled out by angelic hands before they would leave Sodom. You know, we can well wonder if the Lord would have just left them there in Sodom. You know, if you love it so much, well, fine, just stay there. He might have just left them there if it had not been for the intercessory prayer of who? Of Abraham, back in chapter 18, verse 32. Now, Lot's reluctance to leave Sodom stands, remember how we had all those contrasts between Lot and Abraham. Well, here we have another contrast. Um, this stands in contrast to Abraham's very ready obedience when he was initially called by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees. What did he do? He packed up and he left. No questions. We're going to see how Lot argues and questions and tries to debate with the angels. Can't imagine that, but he does. 
Um, but Abraham didn't do that. He just picked up and he left. And furthermore, unlike Lot, who's told where to go, the angels t tell him to go to the mountain. But Abraham didn't know where he was going. God didn't tell him, but he left anyway. Furthermore, another cr contrast is that um, Ur wasn't about to be destroyed. <laughs> you know, God didn't say, get out of the city, Abraham, because I'm about to destroy it. He just said, get out, leave your father, leave everything, and get out. And Abraham obeyed. Now, he did take his father along, but he did leave Ur. And yet, Lot was told that Sodom was about to be destroyed, and still he didn't immediately obey. He lingered. So we see some, again, some big contrasts between these two men. Okay, let's look now at part two of this section Lot's withdrawal and go to his longing for Zoar. And for this, we're going to look at verses 17 to 22. It says, And it came to pass when they had brought them, in other words, the angels had brought the family forth abroad, that he, now this is one of the angels, said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. In other words, don't stay anywhere in the valley here. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Now here's, this is unbelievable, but it's in the scripture, so we have to believe it. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto. And he must have been pointing in the direction of Zoar. He says, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. <laughs> oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he, this is the angel, said unto Lot him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city, speaking of Zoar, for the which thou hast spoken. That's kind of funny language, for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Well, what we've got here is that once outside the city of Sodom, these uh, two angelic messengers very fervently and urgently begin to command Lot and his wife and his two daughters to escape for their very lives. They're told, what, to not look behind them, but to flee to the mountain and not stay anywhere at all in the plain. Judgment was about to consume everything in the Valley of Siddim, or the Jordanian Plain, as it's called. So the only safe refuge they were telling Lot was in the mountains. Now, the spiritual application to all this is really very simple. The believer must be willing to turn himself from the world, represented by what? By Sodom. Turn yourself from the world and actually to flee from the world to a place of higher ground, you know, with the Lord, so to speak. He must be willing to not look back on that which he has left. You know, he's identified himself with Christ. And so you're not to look back 
at your, you know, your pre-Christ world. Don't look back with longing or with double-minded regrets about all that you've left, like the, the Israelites did when they left Egypt. You know, they started to moan and groan, well, we've left all the leeks and the onions and all the good things in Egypt. So we're not to do that because in doing so, we're going to just harm or destroy our own testimony. And we'll end up with great loss, as Lot did. Now, it is quite possible to imagine this, and I want you to get a handle on this, um, that when the angels were telling Lot to flee to the mountain, that they were pointing in the direction of Hebron, the, or, or Mamre, which my husband tells me is Mamre, so I'm sorry I've been pronouncing it wrong all these weeks, but uh, that they were pointing, flee to the mountain, and they're pointing to where they, with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, had just met the previous day with Abraham. In other words, they were pointing to where Abraham lived. He was up in the mountains, okay? Now, it's very reasonable to believe that they would have been trying, you see, to point Lot back to where he needed to be spiritually, where did he need to be? He needed to be on that higher ground with his uncle Abraham, who was the only man around in that probably whole country who knew the Lord. I mean, who was a spiritual example. So like the prodigal son, you know, the, the story of the prodigal son over in Luke chapter 15, Lot, if he had done what the angels were saying, go to the mountain, go back to Abraham, don't you know that he would have been received by Abraham with open arms and ready forgiveness, uh, just as the father in the story of the prodigal? He would have been. We know that because we know Abraham. Actually, it's interesting if you want to look ahead for a minute. Look at verses 27 and 28. We find in those verses that Abraham got up really early in the morning and he went to the mountain which overlooked the Jordan plain. In other words, he could look down and see the whole valley of Siddim down there. Perhaps, you see, just like the prodigal's father, Abraham was straining his eyes looking for who? To come up the valley, up the mountain. Lot. See, Lot was like a son to him, even though he was his nephew. So don't you know he's standing there looking, straining his old eyes as far as he can see to see if Lot is coming. However, unlike the prodigal, Lot gave no evidence of repentance. He was not willing to humble himself before his uncle, swallow his pride, admit his errors in having gone to Sodom in the first place. And uh, so he just didn't return to Abraham as the, the prodigal son had done with his father. You remember he had not gone back to live with Abraham even after his first warning about Sodom when he had been taken a prisoner by King Catalamer from the east. And uh, now he's evidencing the same pride here in Genesis 19. Although he was forced to leave Sodom empty-handed, yet he would not repent and swallow his pride and return to Abraham. Now, it is almost incredulous to read Lot's response to the very urgent angelic warning. 
in verses 18 to 20, first of all, what Lot does is he argues with the angels and then he begs them. So he was right back at doing his very favoritist activity, which was trying to compromise. Instead of being, I mean, he shows some thankfulness here, but um, it's like, thank you, but. <laughs> Instead of being unconditionally thankful to the angels for their warning and for their rescue and for their advice, you know, go back to the mountain, go back to Abraham. Instead of being thankful, he begins to protest about the dangers of going to live in the mountain. He said that he feared some evil might take him and that he might die. Do you notice that in verse 19? Some evil might take me and I might die. You notice the selfishness there? I mean, we might be able to understand it if he was concerned about his wife and his daughters. You know, oh no, please, that's going to be too dangerous for my wife. She, she's, a, you know, she's a real pussycat. I don't think she could handle that. Or my daughters. They've been so pampered they can't handle living in the mountain or going back to a tent. But he doesn't say, he's not concerned about them. I mean, Lot, the more I study his life, the man was very selfish. He said some evil might take, over, take me and I might die. And it's also ironic that Lot was saying that while he was thankful for his life, notice again the selfishness, he said my life um, instead of our lives, even though he was thankful for his life having been spared, yet he was concerned that now those who had saved him were going to send him to a dangerous place. I mean, it, that's just totally ironic. It doesn't make sense. He was distrusting the very ones who had just rescued him. Besides, even the worst wild beast that they might encounter in the mountain would have been like a tame pussycat compared to the human beasts who um, had almost destroyed him. I mean, those, those men of Sodom, if they had gotten into the house, probably would have killed him the night before. And it's also ironic and it's illogical, no logic at all in Lot's thinking here, that Lot had not been afraid to linger in Sodom even after he had just been told by angels who proved who they were, he'd been told that, um, you know, heaven was going to destroy the whole city, and he wasn't afraid to linger there. And yet now he's arguing that he is afraid to obey a message from heaven regarding a place of refuge. I mean, totally illogical. But the reason behind all of this, it's easy to see his shallow argument here, um, the reason is that he still desired to remain as close as possible to Sodom. In other words, to the comforts of the world with which he'd grown accustomed. And he was, remember, a very wealthy businessman. And his wealth was primarily due to what? His many cattle. Remember, that's why he had to leave Lot in the first place, because they had so many cattle between the two of them, there wasn't enough room for them to feed on the ground. So his wealth was due to his many herds. And he may have thought that his cattle would be spared from the destruction, since his cattle would have been outside the city. And if he could get God to agree to spare the city of Zoar and let him live there, then he was figuring he could still maintain the kind of lifestyle that he so greatly loved. But what Lot was really asking God, 
whom he does acknowledge here, he does acknowledge that God had been good enough to spare his life. And um, what he's asking is that, uh, that, that God now be good enough to allow him to continue to go on sinning. That's what he's really asking. You get, want to get to the bottom line. You've been good enough to spare my life. Now be good enough to let me keep on sinning, except I'll do it in a smaller way, Lord. Because Zoar is a small city. It's much smaller than Sodom. You know what the name Zoar means? In Hebrew, it means small or little. Zoar was the smallest of the five city-states of the Siddim Valley. And you can read about it. It had also been <clears throat> attacked and conquered by King Ketelamer back in chapter 14. So the real essence of Lot's request here was that he was insisting on having his own way. It had worked, after all, with Abraham. Remember when Lot had very selfishly asked for the first choice of land, or Abraham had offered it to him, but he didn't hesitate and he took it. And so... Um, he figured, well, if it worked with Abraham, maybe it will work with God as well. He hoped that um, God would give in, and God did. And you notice he even made sure that he spoke of himself as God's servant. He did call himself a servant in verse 19. Even though he's saying he's God's servant, but his request is really this. He's really saying, not the mountain, Lord, but Zoar. Not Abraham and back to the tent life, the separated life with a spiritual man. But give me the world, except give me a smaller city. So what is he really saying? Not thy will be done, Lord, but my will. <clears throat> Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Genesis, uh, says this. He says, quote, I wonder if anyone is thinking... But what Lot wanted was not too bad, was it? Because after all, God let him escape to Zoar. In other words, God gave him what he asked for. Well, if you are thinking this way, I fear for you because you are missing the whole point. Can't you see that one of the reasons why you can't sin just a little bit is precisely that you can sin just a little bit? There would be no danger if God always stepped in to stop you from doing it, but God does not stop you. There are limits to what God will permit, but nevertheless, God will let you sin. He will let the Jews construct their golden calf. He will permit David to commit adultery with Bathsheba and then murder her husband. He will allow Gomer to run off with other lovers. He will not interfere when the prodigal leaves home to squander his inheritance in a foreign country. In the final analysis, God will allow you to do what you are committed to doing, and you will have to bear the consequences of your actions. End of quote. Very true. I mean, if you want to sin a little bit, and you're committed to sinning a little bit, God will let you have your way, but you will have to live with the consequences, just as we'll see Lot had to live with the consequences. So God, uh, just like Abraham had done back in Genesis 13, God gave Lot his choice, and he allowed him to go to Zoar. 
He didn't plead with him anymore, but he left him to his life of carnality. But he did honor Abraham's intercessory prayer by saving Lot, you know, by getting him to a place of safety. In fact, the angel told Lot to hurry to Zoar. You know, don't just walk, run, because he could not do anything until Lot was in the clear. I mean, God gave specific directions. Lot is not to be harmed. So he said, hurry, get to Zoar, because I'm unable to do any destruction until you're safely in Zoar. Now, if the story had ended here, it would be bad enough for Lot, right? But it didn't. It gets even worse. So let's turn now to part five, Lot's wife. And you all know this sad story. But first of all, before we get to her, oh, I've subtitled this A Failed Husband. We're going to look at three sections under this part. We're going to look at the fire from heaven, a pillar of salt, and then the smoke of Sodom. So we'll begin by looking at the fire from heaven, verses 23 to 25. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. So were Lot's herds destroyed? Yes, they were. Instantly, when Lot and his family finally left the danger zone, judgment fell in the form of fire and brimstone from heaven. Although it fell directly on Sodom and Gomorrah, Yet we are told that God's judgment did also include the other cities of the plain, which were Adma and Zeboam, but not Zoar, because, you know, God saved Zoar. By the way, Zoar is the only city that still is surviving in that area. I mean, it, there is still a city named Zoar in that area, I should say. And all, also all the inhabitants, were told, of those cities perished, as well as all that which grew upon the ground. So even the vegetation was destroyed. Now, it's interesting to notice verse 24. Okay, take a note of that verse. Because we notice there the words, the Lord, appear twice. We're told that the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from who? From the Lord out of heaven. Now, if you look at that, that sounds like two members of the triune Godhead were involved in this judgment. And I believe that's exactly what it's saying. The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, who had just visited with Abraham the night before, and who had said that he was going to go down, remember, to assess the situation over there in Sodom and Gomorrah, he is seemingly the first Lord here, the Lord who called down the judgment. And that judgment in the form of fire and brimstone was then sent from who? The Lord out of heaven, speaking of God the Father. So two members of the Trinity were involved in this, and I imagine the Holy Spirit was as well. Now, it is also interesting to notice that the word fire appears for the very first time in Scripture in this verse, in verse 24. And its first mention has to do with God's judgment on man's sin. 
And so, you know, whenever something is mentioned for the first time in the scripture, that gives you the clue as to what that word will symbolically mean all the way, the rest of the way through the scripture. And that's true. Fire speaks of God's judgment on sin, on man's sin. Does anybody know when the last time the word fire might appear in the scripture? Right. It's in reference to the lake of fire, and it's in Revelation 21.8. And it's interesting that it's also mentioned in connection with brimstone in that verse. So the first time we hear of fire and the last time, both are connected with brimstone. And the last time it also speaks upon about um, God's judgment on sin. However, rather than describing a judgment on man's body as it does the first time, you know, they were all destroyed physically. Okay, that's what it's mainly saying, even though we know that they also were destroyed spiritually. But the last time we read about fire and brimstone, it is really speaking about the second death. It even says the second death. So it's speaking about God's uh, judgment on man's sin as far as his soul is concerned. So it's interesting sometimes to do little studies like that and compare the first time and the last time in Scripture. Well, exactly what the fire was that assisted in destroying Sodom, I'm going to say Sodom instead of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other cities. All right, I'll just say Sodom and you understand I'm speaking of the whole area. But um, a lot of people have speculated about what that fire was, and it's difficult to determine what it was. It could have been some kind of supernatural fire that God sent down from heaven. Or it could have been, as many have suggested, it could have been lightning. And the word brimstone is very often affiliated with sulfur, but it can also refer to any flammable substance. Now, it's interesting to remember that back in Genesis 14.10, when we were discussing the war between the four kings and the five kings, that we were told that there were many asphalt or sulfur pits where in that area in the Siddim Valley and even the Jewish historian Josephus referred to the Dead Sea as the asphalt sea or the sulfur sea now sulfur has a highly combustible um, character so if we combine the concept of all the sulfur in that area With lightning, you know, the fire that God sends down from heaven, whether it's lightning or some other kind of supernatural fire, if we combine those two ideas with the word overthrow that is spoken of in verse 25, you know, it says, He, the Lord, overthrew those cities. If we combine those three ideas together, overthrowing, fire, and sulfur, then perhaps we can get an idea of what actually happened Uh, in this destruction. You see, the word overthrow suggests an earthquake. Also over in 2 Peter 2.6, when it's talking about this, the Greek word suggests an earthquake. What God might have done, and this is speculation, but it makes a lot of sense, God may have caused an earthquake to occur along the great fault. There is a great fault called the... um, the Great Rift, which goes through the Jordan Valley, through the Dead Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba, 
the Red Sea, and it continues on through the upper Nile Valley and on into the southern part of Africa. I mean, it's there to this day. It's called the Great Rift. And that fault has been subject over the many, many years to repeated earthquakes. And often those earthquakes are accompanied with volcanic activity in which massive concentrations of salt have been deposited along with vast quantities of flammable hydrocarbons and sulfur. Now, um, if the earthquake released these very combustible materials into the atmosphere, you know, with, along with earthquake and volcanic activity, at the very same time that God sent down fire from heaven or lightning to ignite that whole mixture, then there would have been a terrific explosion and a tremendous fire, which would keep burning for a long time due to all the sulfur pits in that area. So, you know, it would be like um, gasoline, you know, it would just kind of keep on, the fire would go on to the asphalt pits and just keep spreading. So this is a possibility, you know, of how this happened. Regardless of how God caused the destruction, we know that it was supernatural. I mean, he did it. It was a supernatural thing, whether he used naturalistic phenomena or whether he used something specially created to do this. Nonetheless, God did do it. Now, many archaeologists <clears throat> believe that uh, the five cities, except for Zoar, which still exists, that the other cities are now covered by the southern part of the Dead Sea. Now, this isn't a real good picture of the Dead Sea, but this part right here, if you could cut it off there, they believe that this was all land at one time and that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the other two cities were actually there, but now that the, the uh, Dead Sea covers them. <clears throat> the Dead Sea, by the way, is the lowest spot on the face of the earth. It's 1,286 feet below sea level. And I don't think that's a coincidence either. I think, you know, again, everything, the Lord is giving us pictures of things. I think this is indicative of how incredibly low in degeneracy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had fallen. Anyway, so many believe that it's under that part of the Dead Sea. Now, I, my husband and I and my son, our son, actually have been there. How many of you have been there to the, that lower end of the Dead Sea? You know how hot it is? Have you, did you um, go in the water? It's amazing. I mean, the water is so incredibly hot, and you cannot sink. You, you literally float right up on the top because it is so full of salt. You cannot sink. And I have a picture, I think it... I couldn't find it, but it's in a slide, I think, of my husband and my son. I didn't, I just put my tootsie in. I didn't want to get all salty, but they went in and they were literally, it looks so funny because they're totally up on top of the water. You know, they're not even sunk in at all. They're just floating up on top of the water of the Dead Sea. And my husband told me to, to tell you that he changed his clothes from his clothes to his bathing suit in the Lot Hotel. <laughs> I had forgotten that there is a hotel called the Lot Hotel. <laughs> okay, let's go now to, uh, we've looked at the fire from heaven. Let's look at the pillar of salt. And for this, just look at verse 26. It says, but his wife looked back 
from behind him, meaning from behind Lot, and she became a pillar of salt. Well, if you remember, the angelic warning to Lot and his family had been, escape for your lives, don't look behind at all. You know, don't look behind yourselves. And the four members of Lot's family who were saved so as by fire, what they were being told here is that they really needed to put behind them all those things that had to do with Sodom. They must forget them. They must divorce themselves from all connected with the worldliness and the wickedness of Sodom. But Lot's wife had her heart so knit to Sodom, she was so in love with Sodom and the comfortable life that she had been living there, and I want to give her the benefit of the doubt, and as a mother, I can't help but think that she also looked back thinking of the children that she was leaving behind. So, so it, it says that she lingered behind Lot and then made the fatal mistake of disobeying the Lord's command. She looked back at Sodom. And the Hebrew word there for look back tells us that it was with an intense longing. She didn't want to leave. And immediately she became what? A pillar of salt. Now, don't get the idea, as this picture shows, that, you know, from the legs up or something, she suddenly started turning into salt. I believe that the explosions in the Siddim Valley, I mean, that could have happened, but this makes better sense. The explosions of, you know, volcanic activity and everything else that might have been happening would have thrown large quantities of salt deposits into the air. And Mrs. Lott probably was covered and buried by just such a falling salt deposit. Or she might have been buried by a mixture of salt and volcanic ash, which over the years petrified her body, similar to what happened to the citizens of Pompeii after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Today, if you go to that area, there are a number of salt mm, pillars, you could call them, and any one of them could be Mrs. Lot. <laughs> the Arabs have identified, I mean, they'll show you any one of them and say, this is Mrs. Lot. Um, but there are a lot of salt pillars. So that's what makes me think, you know, that the salt was just thrown into the air and made these pillars in a lot of different places. But I believe the word of God, and I think with all my heart that under one of them are the remains of Mrs. Lot. Yeah. Well, in Luke 17... When the Lord Jesus, you know, was speaking about the events which will occur near the time of his second coming. Now, not the time of the rapture, but the time of his return at the end of the tribulation, you know, right before he sets up his millennial kingdom, he said that things would be the same as they were in the days of Lot, when people would be eating and drinking and planning and building. Uh, did you want to talk? He said this, he said, But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And then what he did is he warned his listeners to remember Lot's wife. That's in Luke 17, 32. And he, in the next verse, connected a remembrance of her 
with these words. He said, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Now, what he was saying is that there is a real peril, a real danger for those who seek to hang on to the things of this life and this world. It's really stupid because nothing in this world will last. So don't get attached to anything in this world except this book and human souls because those are the only two things that will continue on into the next world. But we spend an awful lot of time on the things of this world, don't we? We, sh- we? we really don't need to be doing that. All right, well, the implication is that Mrs. Lot was seeking to save or to hold on to the life that she had enjoyed so much in Sodom, and consequently, she lost her life. Lot, now I called this section also Lot a failed husband, because Lot, I'm going to put most of the blame for this on him. All right, since we're women, Joe, you just be quiet for a while. (laughs) But Lot had failed as a spiritual husband to lead his wife to safety. He failed to lead his wife to focus on God and on obedience to God's words and on spiritual matters over and above earthly matters. For that matter, not only had he failed as a spiritual husband, but he even failed as a physical husband because he should have had his wife by her hand, you know, as the angels had done when they had gotten them out of Sodom. And he should have had her by his side. But where was Lot? He was up in front. I mean, this again demonstrates his selfishness. He was ahead of her. He should have really been concerned about her safety. And so you see what he did? He left her unprotected from temptation and from subsequent judgment. And so, you know, it was her fault for looking back, but he also will take the blame in heaven for what he did in not being a spiritual leader and not even being a good physical husband to her. Now, whether Mrs. Lott was righteous also, we don't know. I don't know if she only lost her, her body and her soul is in heaven. We are not really told. I mean, indications would suggest that she wasn't, but also if we looked at Lot, indications are that he wasn't saved. But he is, and perhaps she is too. Where did he get his wife? We don't know. I don't know if she was a sodomite citizen or if he had gotten her while he still lived with Abraham. So we'll, I guess we'll just have to wait till we get to heaven to see if Mrs. Lot is there or not. Okay, the smoke of Sodom, verses 27 to 29. And Abraham gat up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. It reminds me of the smoke coming out of those two towers, doesn't it? Mm. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. Not Lot. Who did he remember? He remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. There we see that word again that indicates earthquake when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. The Holy Spirit here seems to give us a little bit of a reprieve 
in the sickening and tragic accounts of shame and destruction that we see in the rest of the chapter. In verses 27 and 28, we get a quick glimpse of what Lot could have become if he, like his uncle Abraham, had chosen to remain separated from the world. Abraham arose early in the morning, and where did he go? He returned to stand in the place where he had stood with the Lord the day before and had beseeched him on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, he had uh, interceded in prayer, especially for his nephew. So he was on that same spot where he had been just the previous day. Um, And now as he looked out, and he saw all the plain, the land of the plain was filled with smoke as the smoke of a furnace. What do you think that was doing to his heart? You know it had to grieve him because it, he realized in seeing the burning of Sodom that his nephew had not even been able, he had not even influenced his own family members. Because remember his prayer was that if there are ten righteous in the city, You won't destroy it, and the Lord agreed. So now Abraham, as he sees the destruction, he knows that Lot had not even managed to influence his own family. And he would have realized um, that Lot might even have been in danger because he hadn't asked to spare Lot. So he was probably straining, you know, as far as he could see, straining his eyes to see if there was any sign of Lot coming up the mountain toward him. He would have been wondering, had God spared Lot. Would Lot now return to his uncle and they could be reunited as a family? So you know that it must have really, really grieved his fatherly heart when he saw no indication of the return of Lot. In verse 29, we're given the reason for God's mercy and patience with Lot. It was not because God remembered Lot, but it was because God remembered Abraham, and that's why he rescued Lot. You know, it was very good for Lot that he had a brother in the Lord, wasn't it, who had been interceding for him. You know, I really don't know why I'm saved. I honestly don't. You know, to me, it's a miracle (laughs) that anybody's saved, because you look at Christianity and you can get so confused with everybody that claims to be a Christian and all some of the crazy things that go on in the name of Christianity. It's a miracle that I'm saved. I don't know why I'm saved. It's just God's grace. But somebody, because there's nobody in my family, as far as I can go back on either sides of my mother's family or my father's family, I don't know of anybody who was saved. But there must have been somebody somewhere interceding for me. And I'm so glad. In heaven, I'll find out who that person was. Maybe somebody met me as a little kid. You know, I remember I was in a godly church one summer, and I remember that vacation Bible school stuck out in my mind so much because I think that was the first time I ever heard the gospel. It didn't penetrate. But maybe that that teacher prayed for me. I don't know. But aren't you glad for people like Abraham who intercede on our behalf? He was living righteously, and he was God's friend. And Lot had him to be thankful, too, for his sparing his life. Now, it would have seemed from the world's perspective, at least, that Lot, I mean, that Abraham had really been a fool when he gave Lot first choice of land and ended up, you know, himself living in the hill country. 
while Lot got all that choice, fertile land. Yet we find in the end, who was the fool? Was it Abraham? No. Abraham lost nothing, whereas Lot lost everything. While Lot was fleeing for his very life, having lost his home, his wife, his children, except for two daughters, his position, all his cattle, his respect, everything. He lost it all. While he's fleeing for his life, where is Abraham? Abraham is standing above the smoking ruins of the world on holy ground, where he had stood just the day before face to face with the Lord. You know, don't mock a separated life for Christ. Don't mock it. That's what we should be doing. I mean, it's not that we hide our light under a bushel. No, no, no. We need to be a light set on a hill so that many can see our light for Christ. But we need to be so different from the world that they are drawn to us. We need to be on higher ground. Not down. Don't be the carnal lot type of Christian. You're going to lose in the end. You're going to lose everything you're trying to hang on to. And let your children go. Give them to the Lord so that they can go on that higher ground. I mean, do what it takes to, to, to be separate, to be different for the Lord. It is worth it in the end. Who would trade places with Abraham, you know, to take Lot's place? I surely wouldn't, and I know you wouldn't. Lot could have been, this is the really sad part, he could have been there standing right next to Abraham if he had not, you know, he could have been looking down at the destruction too. He could have been by Abraham's side if he had not allowed his friendship with the world to take a firm grip in his heart. And where did it start? With a little sin. He just lifted up his eyes and looked. And now he was a pitiful wretch of a man, and he would sink even lower. Actually, you know, as we said last week, if it hadn't been for the Apostle Peter, we would not even really know if Lot was saved or not. And that is the worst testimony of all. Do you want somebody coming to your funeral? Do you want your children coming to your funeral, wondering if you're really in heaven? No. I want mine to have a a, a rejoicing ceremony that I have graduated And I'm in glory with the Lord. I don't want them wondering, scratching their heads. Oh, sure hope mom made it to heaven. And I don't want that for my kids either, do you? We really need to be intercessors. I mean, if they're beyond where we can reach them right now, we need to be praying so fervently for all of our friends and family and acquaintances who don't know the Lord. The time is really getting short. So we can see how one little sin in Lot's life led to another and another until he lost almost everything. All he had left, according to the written word of God, was a supply of wine and two daughters. And these were going to be proved to be his final disgrace. So let's look at Lot's wretchedness, verses 30 to 38. hate to read this, but it's a word of God, and we need to read it and study it. Okay, verse 30. And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain. Now you're going to say, what? (laughs) This guy is fickle. 
All right, and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. <laughs> well, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth. Do you think that was true? <laughs> not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in, and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger she also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami. The same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. So far, this chapter <clears throat> has not been one of my favorites. <laughs> it's been a very difficult chapter to read and to discuss, but it just doesn't get any better, does it? As you can see, it ends about as low as one can imagine any true believer could actually get. But he was a true believer, and he got this low. Now, for a while, we don't really know how long Lot lived with his two unmarried daughters in Zoar. However, he became filled with fear, apparently, over what had happened to the other cities in the Siddim Valley because he decided to leave Zoar and flee to the mountains or the hills. See, we find that no matter what God told Lot to do, he seemed to distrust it. You know, when God, through the angels, had told him to run to the mountains, back in verse 17, he said that, what? He feared some evil would overtake him, and uh, he would die. Then God, through the angels, told Lot, okay, all right, you can have your way. You can go to Zoar. And um, I will preserve that city. I will protect you. You'll be safe. And God kept his promise. Zoar was not destroyed. And Lot was safe. Except we find that he again became fearful, which demonstrated his distrust in God once again. So he left Zoar, and he went to the hills to live. And we learn of his poverty in the fact that he went to live where? In a cave. If you believe in cavemen, there really were cavemen, and Lot was one of them. He lived in a cave. Now, his example before his daughters was incredibly terrible. I mean, he was a pitiful father. Not only had he made the tragic mistake of raising them in that very wicked environment of Sodom, but he had not kept himself as a godly example before them so that they could at least see a difference between uh, their home and Sodom, you know, what's going on in, in the rest of the city, or that they could see a difference in their father and the rest of the city. 
but they weren't able to see much of a difference at all. And then, of course, there had been that awful night prior to the loss of their home and their, their mother and their siblings and all their friends and their fellow citizens when they had even heard their father offer them as living sacrifices to that lusting mob to do what was good in their eyes. Can you imagine that? So they didn't have a very good example. Again, you know, I'm throwing most of the blame on Lot. He was the spiritual leader of that family, and he failed to do his job. It's no wonder that the mentality of Sodom was so ingrained in these two girls that they concocted and then carried through with a depraved plan to conceive children. Dr. John Phillips says this. He says their proposal was, quote, so unblushingly shameful that it betrays at once the kind of teaching received in Sodom's schools that these girls received. There was no thought for God, no knowledge of his word, no concern for his will, no concept of his care. They were spiritually dead. Well, after getting their father drunk... And you know, to get drunk, you have to be willing to drink. They couldn't force him to drink wine. You know, he was obviously in deep despair and carried with him from Zoar. Not much, but he managed to carry a lot of wine. And it wasn't like they forced him to drink. He had to drink on his own and got to the point of drunkenness. So they got their father drunk. And then first the elder daughter and then the younger seduced their own father and had sons through their shameless incest. The older daughter, we are told, gave birth to a son whom she named Moab, which means literally from the father. So did uh, Lot know who the father was? (laughs) Yes, he knew who the father was, from the father. From Moab sprang who? The Moabites. And they were the hostile neighbors of Israel. When the Israelites, remember, were on their long walk from Egypt over to Canaan through the desert, you might recall that it was the Moabites who opposed them. In fact, the king of the Moabites, King, who knows, Balak, actually hired Balaam, the prophet Balaam, to curse God's people. You can read about that in Numbers 22 through 24. But of course, God would not allow Balaam to curse his people. And anyway, this is the father of the Moabites, this son of the oldest daughter of Lot. Now, Lot's younger daughter gave birth to Ben-Ami, which means son of my people. And he was, he became the father of the Ammonites. And they also took advantage of every opportunity to take sides with Israel's enemies. So the Moabites and the Ammonites, the descendants of Lot, became fierce enemies of the Israelites. Now it's interesting to find that the first half of Genesis tells us, I'm talking about the first part of the whole book of Genesis, tells us about the, the birth of three male children who were not born in the perfect will of God. Now, these are some of my husband's customers. 
I don't know if they're going to show up at the Mar- High Point Furniture Market this year, which starts Sunday, but in the past they have bought uh, large quantities of furniture from my husband. They, um, he says they're nice guys, but they are Arabs, and um, they have a big furniture store in North Carolina called Farmville Furniture, but they're from Saudi Arabia. Now, it's... Uh, And he knows the names, and I forgot what they are. But anyway, the first half of Genesis tells us about the birth of three male children born out of the will of God, perfect will of God. The first was, who can guess? Oh, I've got them up there. (laughs) The first was Ishmael, who was born when Sarah and Abraham tried to take matters into their own hands and um, had Abraham... Go in unto Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid of Sarah, and, of course, bear a son whose name was Ishmael. The second two we just read about were Moab and Ben-Ami, the sons of Lot, born by his own daughters. They were Lot's sons were also his grandsons. It's true. Now, the descendants of these three men along with the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau. What did Esau do? He sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. All right, so these three, Ishmael, Moab, and ben along with Esau, became the ancestral fathers of the Arabic peoples. And as we know only all too well, their animosity with Israel and all those who befriend Israel, whether that speaks of the Christians or the United States of America, um, continues into our present day. In fact, this battle has literally affected the entire world. So what we are studying about, you see, is not just ancient history, which has no bearing on where we are in our modern day. It does have a bearing on our lives. Not only does what we study, uh, not only is what we study important in that we should learn from the mistakes of these men and women in the Bible that we study, and also from what they do right, we should learn and apply those things to our own lives. But it also helps us greatly to understand the roots of the situations in our current world. You know, that our current world is encountering, even as we're speaking. For example, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. I don't care what they say on television and how they try to persuade you. The final authority is right here. As John MacArthur, praise the Lord, was trying so badly to get through on the Larry King Live show. This is the final authority, not our opinions. You will hear opinions until your head is spinning. But this is the final authority, and the Bible makes it abundantly clear who is the rightful owner of the land of Israel. And it is the descendants of Abraham who are born through the promised son, Isaac. Not Ishmael. Who are those born through Isaac? They are the Jewish people. The rightful owners are not the descendants of Ishmael or Moab or Ammon or Esau. Not only did Abraham's mistake with Hagar 
bring a lot of trouble to this world, but now we see that so too did Lot's love for Sodom bring an awful lot of grief into this world. We must remember this this important fact, that no one person is an island unto themselves. Don't think that your little sin is not going to affect anybody. It affects more than you could ever probably realize. We see that the sins of these men affected other people even into our own day. All those people who died in these terrorist attacks died because, if you want to go back to it, (laughs) these men's sins. Of course, ultimately, because of Adam's sin. One person and that what they do wrong can affect the whole world. But by God's grace, what one man did can also save the whole world. We don't deserve that. I mean, if you say that's not fair, well, it's not fair that one man could shed his blood and everybody in the world could be saved if they just believe on him. Well, as far as we can tell, it does not ever really look like Lot repented. I'm almost through, but this is going to be the most exciting part of all, so just bear with me. It doesn't look like he repented, at least according to that which we find recorded about him. Although, of course, we can't be certain what he might have done before he died. I mean, that's not recorded. He might have repented, you know, right before he died. But up to what we have, it doesn't look like he did. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it does seem logical to suppose that the two angels, when they were instructing Lot to flee to the mountains... I don't think you can see this very well, but this is the Dead Sea, all right? And he would have been down here somewhere in Sodom. And the two angels, when they said flee to the mountains initially, would have been pointing in this direction because right here is where Abraham was living. It's about 25 miles away. And they would have pointed and they would say flee to the mountains and they'd be pointing to Abraham's tent up there near, near Hebron. However, what did Lot beg to do? He begged to go to Zoar. So some have concluded that he got himself right with the Lord when he finally left Zoar and did go to the mountains after all, as God had told him to do in the beginning. But there are a number of reasons that tell us this was not so, that he did not get himself right with God when he went, left Zoar and went to the mountains. For one thing, why did Lot leave Zoar? Was it to be obedient to the Lord? No. Right. He left because of fear. Dr. Morris tells us that there were probably continuing tremors um, and fires all around, which would have made Zoar a very frightening place to live. Um, so he, he left because of fear. Now, another reason for saying that Lot did not evidence uh, repentance is by the fact that Lot never did return to whom? To who? To Abraham. He never did return to Abraham. If he had, you see, that would have demonstrated his return to the Lord. But Lot's pride stood in the way. In fact, we actually learn a lot about Lot Oh, a lot about lot. By our knowledge of the Moabites and the Ammonites. You know where those two groups of people lived? I should have a pen, but I don't. The Moabites and the Ammonites actually lived 
on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. If you could see this, this area right here is Moab. This area up here is Ammon. So these two areas were not in the, this direction of um, Hebron. They were not on the west side of the Dead Sea, where the angels would have said, go to the mountains. You know, in other words, go back to Abraham. They were in the completely opposite direction. They were on the opposite side of the Dead Sea. So what this tells us is that rather than going west to Hebron and to Abraham, when he did leave Zoar, he um, instead took his wine and his two daughters and he went far east. So unlike the prodigal son who finally came to his senses and returned humbly back to his father, admitting that he had sinned against both him and heaven, Lot went in even a further far country than Sodom. He lived in a cave, and he tried to drown his despair in drink, and he ended up being the grandfather of his own two sons. Now, here then, in a worse situation than the prodigal's pig pen, ends the story of Abraham's nephew Lot, a man who had begun with incredible advantages because he dwelt and he walked for many years with the greatest man of faith in his day, the only man in the Old Testament to have been called the friend of God. But Lot made some bad choices. They might not have at first appeared to have been that bad, but we see how those bad choices made because of his own wrong set of priorities led him to the place where he had absolutely nothing left except his eternal soul. So if ever there was a biblical example of the eternal security of the believer, it was Lot. In other words, you know, if you are truly, truly saved, born again, that you can never lose, lose your salvation. Because if ever a man might have been able to lose his salvation, it would have been Lot. And yet Peter told, tells us, no, he was saved. He was a just, righteous man. But in conclusion, let me tell you how God's grace is so amazingly incredible. And this is seen not only in the fact that God saved Lot from the destruction of Sodom and even declared him to be a righteous man, in spite of all the terrible mistakes he had made. But his grace, God's grace, is also seen in the fact that God even made some good come out of Lot's life. Remember the Genesis 50-20 principle. What man messes up, God can still turn to good. What man does for evil, God can turn to good. Do you know that there was some fruit in Lot's life? Well, for one thing... Zoar wasn't destroyed, and it would have been. Now, it wasn't destroyed because Lot interceded for it, or Lot prayed for the citizens there. It was only not destroyed because of God's grace. But that was at least a little fruit in his life, that all those people at least had a second chance. Maybe, maybe he even witnessed to a few of them. I doubt it, but maybe he did. Furthermore, when, as we study the Bible, we discover that two of Lot's descendants were in the direct genealogical record 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is that grace or what? (laughs) Coming from this horrible story we just read about, having incest with his own two daughters, and yet we find that Ruth was a Moabitess woman. She was a Moabite. And she became the wife of who? Boaz. You all know that wonderful story. And Boaz, of course, is one of the ancestors of not only King David, but of our Lord. And then there was Naamah, N-A-A-M-A-H, who was an Ammonite woman. An Ammonite, not a Moabite. She was an Ammonite. And she became one of King Solomon's wives. In fact, she was the mother of King Rehoboam, who is also in the direct ancestral lineage of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you talk about grace. Don't ever let somebody tell you that the Old Testament is just all about God's judgment and what a harsh God he is. He is so merciful and full of grace. I I mean, it's just wonderful. He even allowed Lot to have fruit in his life from his terrible mistakes. We have a wonderful God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so very much for who you are. You are magnificent. You are above our understanding. You are so wonderful. Your ways are so much higher than our ways, and your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. We can never comprehend you, but we sure can worship you. And Father, we just thank you for your grace. Thank you for the lessons you teach us. Help us, Lord, to become less and less and less worldly-minded and to go onto that higher ground, to be Abraham's in this world which so desperately needs to see the light emanating from our lives. Help us to be separated and holy and prepare ourselves for your soon coming that we may not be ashamed when you do appear. Father, I just ask in closing that if there is anyone here who is at all in doubt about her own salvation, that she would seek one of us out and that she would settle that issue this very day. We thank you. We love you. We pray your blessing upon our country, our president, our military. Lord Jesus, have your will and way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Are we going to sing?